Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Thank you for inviting me. So let's just first of all talk about how you got 
drawn into being curious about this whole field of energy and consciousness? Well, you know, it's actually hard to say when it all began. I think I've always been a little bit off the beaten path. I can remember in junior high school, I did a pupil specialty report on ESP. <laughs> you know, so I've, ha- I've had the interest. I think one of the key points is taking time off before going to medical school so that the brainwashing process didn't start right away. And I had a <laughs> I did some traveling, uh, you know, went actually overland to India and did the sort of the hippie journey and uh, got, uh, became aware that there were other states of consciousness, other levels of consciousness. So when I came back to medical school, I already had the sense that there was more to it. A really important, you know, I learned how to meditate and some of those self-explorations and altered consciousness, but a really key event for me was a friend introducing me to a woman who we called a healer. Um, I didn't actually know what that meant. I thought it was just a woo-woo and rubbish. But uh, this woman, I went to a lecture of hers, and she uses her inner senses, her sixth sense, if you will, to make medical diagnoses. And she worked with uh, the medical community, and I was so taken by her model of things and her skills that I studied with her for Eight or nine years. This is Reverend Rosalind Briere, who's based in Los Angeles, and she had really amazing skills that showed me that energy is real, even if you can't see it with your five physical senses. So from that point on, I've always been looking for the energy angle to events and experiences that people have in the outer world, because I think that is really the level that you have to go to if you want to explain medical things, for example. One of the most frustrating aspects of medical school for me was this bugaboo word called idiopathic, that a disease is often called idiopathic, which is very impressive and knowledgeable, but it actually is just Latin or Greek, I forget. We don't know what causes it. (laughs) (laughs) Too funny. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they they cover up ignorance by using fancy terminology, but so many diseases didn't have a true understanding of the cause. When you look at the energy level, you you have so much more leverage, and then you can apply energy-based techniques, whether it's EFT or acupuncture or what have you, and and, uh, really make things happen. So that's that's a a nutshell how I I got hooked on energy. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that going to medical school didn't completely stamp out your interest in healing and your focus on healing. And then how did you then move from there and those early experiences with Rosalind Breyer into your interest in phantom limb pain? Well, my first job out of residency was in the VA outpatient clinic in Boston and did a lot of work with post-traumatic stress disorder, the tools that we had back then, which were truly sad to say. We encouraged people to talk about the experiences over and over again, thinking that they would get it out of their system somehow. Now we know that they continue to traumatize themselves. But I, I got burnt out of PTSD, so I took a job at Spalding Rehab in the pain management program, thinking I had left PTSD behind, not realizing that underlying so many cases of chronic pain, uh, emotional trauma that has never been addressed. So by that point in my training, I was beginning to learn some of the energy psychology techniques. Initially, I actually did some some hands-on energy balancing with patients, create some issues. Psychiatrists are supposed to touch their patients. So I was more interested in the self-management techniques, and EFT has actually fit in fantastically. But phantom limb part began inadvertently. You know, I've always been interested in it because it's just so unusual. For the listeners who may not know, it's a syndrome that happens to a lot of amputees 
after the, the surgical event takes away the limb that was either diseased or injured, it still feels as though the limb is there. When their eyes are closed, they can even act as though, for example, people whose leg has been amputated, they'll often stand up thinking that the leg is there before they remember to put on their prosthesis. Such real sensation. So the standard medical explanation is that, you know, your brain remembers in cortical pathways, etc., etc. But it's all based on the brain. But I had one particular patient who wasn't responding to relaxation techniques and exercise and things. He agreed to let me treat him with therapeutic touch, which is a form of non-contact energy balancing where the, the nurse uses the therapist. Smooths it. it looks like they're smoothing out the space around the person without actually making physical contact. The idea being that you're actually working with the energy field or the aura. And in fact, with a little bit of practice, you can, you can feel a healthy person's aura or the boundary of their aura just with the palms of your hands. So that's what I was doing with this gentleman. He was lying down on an exam table. He had above the knee, yeah, above the knee amputation on one side. And I was just feeling and smoothing out his field in the upper part of his body. And then when I went down to the lower part of his body, I'm not really sure why I did it, but I continued that motion even above the area where his was missing. And I could feel the exact same sensation in my hand over his phantom that I felt over the rest of his body. It felt exactly the same. So for me, that was really shocking. But what added amazement was his eyes, the patient's eyes had been closed during this process. He, he all of a sudden opened his eyes and said, what are you doing? Because he could feel my hand touching his phantom. He didn't know that that's what I was doing, but when he opened his eyes to see it. So both of us, I think, were sensing energy, uh, especially where the place where the boundary of my energy field bumped up against the boundary of his energy field, and his energy field was still there, even though the leg was missing. So that was probably 15 years ago, and I spent the you know the subsequent 15 years trying to unpack what happened in those 10 minutes, <laughs> literally, actually. So that's how I got started. Anomalous and intriguing and fascinating enough that I've been trying to understand what actually happened then. That case where those textbook explanations of this being simply the residual activity of the neurons in our brains that used to govern movement of that phantom limb is now gone really explain what what happens. Those, those are too limited to explain that kind of phenomenon. That's right. That's right. And actually some of the uh, treatments, like for example, when it turns out that the EFT is very helpful because so many amputees have never had a chance to talk about the emotional trauma of having an amputation. Stepping back and looking at it, it seems obvious that it's got to be emotionally devastating. But, you know, that's not the kind of thing that surgeons pay attention to. So when I began to look at that, I found that EFT, the tapping technique, is really helpful for patients to defuse and release the emotional upset, you know, whether it was just shock and grief that they had lost their leg or whether it was shame that they looked funny or, or what have you. Whatever the emotion was, as they released it, the comfortable sensations returned to their body. And that, that would happen in a matter of minutes and hours. So it was too fast for the brain to be rewiring itself. And it sort of proved to me that this kind of pain is primarily an energetic phenomenon and the brain sort of catches up and, you know, embodies it later, but it starts at the level of energy. Yes, and you have really focused on how so many things do start at that level of energy. So what was your journey from there to the work you're doing now with the SEC group, Sports, Energy, and Consciousness, and the focus on sports performance? Well, uh, that was also an indirect route. As you hinted at earlier, I am not a particularly gifted athlete, and I think my career peaked in high school when I snuck my way onto the tennis team, but I'm, I'm a much better fan than athlete, and 
living in the Boston area, then we've had many exceptional sports teams recently. So, in 2004, the baseball team, the Boston Red Sox, won the World Series for the first time in 86 years, and it was very, very exciting, not just watching the game, but the way the whole community, the whole region got swept up in this kind of group energy of enthusiasm. So I, I got interested in what was going on at the group level during that process. And, uh, you know, I wrote about it a little bit from the energy point of view. And then, fortunately, I have a cousin who's a filmmaker. And he and I teamed up to make a documentary about, it was about group energy, but it was using the Red Sox as a case example, if you will. So we had a chance to, the, the team was very cooperative. They let us come to the stadium to Fenway Park and interview fans, interview players. Plus, I got to interview some of the leading scientists who were working on this energy phenomenon. And so we found a couple of things. One is that fan energy is real, measurable, and has a huge impact on the performance of the players. And I also found that several of the players, not many, but several of the players were willing to talk about their energy experience and actually how they use energy techniques. And one of the surprising breakthroughs of the film, if you will, was interviewing the Red Sox catcher at that time in the dugout and watching him demonstrate the tapping technique that he uses to, to get settled before a game. So for him, it was a, a very powerful and simple technique to get rid of whatever anxieties he might have had to help him focus more fully on the game in the moment and to enhance his, his sports performance. So he didn't use the word the zone, but it really helps him to get into that zone of peak performance. And, we, you know, we were very pleased with how the movie uh, turned out as a sort of a teaching tool because sports fans usually don't think about metaphysical concepts like, you know, energy and mind-body alignment and things like that, but they can relate to uh, a team doing well or a star player, like we had a chance to interview Boston's star player that year was David Ortiz, and he talked a lot about heart energy. He, he basically was talking about institute heart math type of <laughs> phenomena without knowing, you know, the science behind it. So we had some very powerful validation from the athletes and the researchers, and it turned out as I began to present on these topics at different psychology conferences and energy energy medicine conferences, that there were other sports psychologists, former athletes and coaches who were interested in these kind of approaches. So we coalesced to form the group that you mentioned, the Sports Energy and Consciousness Group. And what we found is that many, many people have had the experience of being in the zone, but typically it will happen sort of randomly years ago, and it was a totally memorable, life-transforming experience, but they could never get back into it. So they assumed, well, you know, the stars were in alignment. But it turns out there are a number of techniques that you can practice and master that will help you reliably to get into the zone. So that's what the focus of our, our group has been. We, we put together a book by that same name, Sports Energy and Consciousness, Awakening Human Potential Through Sport, and that sort of emphasizes how sport can be a vehicle for personal transformation. I think we tend to look at, you know, meditation or yoga or something like that as a spiritual discipline, but there are many, many parallels between sports training and spiritual training. So that's been one of our focus points, put together our first uh, festival last 
year, and we have another one coming up this June that will feature breakout sessions where people can get to experience firsthand these techniques, we'll have panel discussions with different coaches and psychologists, and we will have a few keynotes that have not been totally lined up yet, but I will say that last year, and uh, literally a last-minute surprise keynote speaker, I was the uh, master's ceremony, so I didn't even know about this over the day before, but for the football fans out there anyway, they'll know who uh, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks is, Pete Carroll. He's a, a fellow who's made a name for himself for being a little unconventional uh, and not sort of the typical hard-nosed uh, sports coach. And he has been public about encouraging his, his, his patients, encouraging his, uh, his athletes to use meditation yoga. But he talked about the importance of being in the moment and being joyful and being your true self and your fullest self as what he is hoping to encourage by being a coach. He, he actually didn't stress winning at all costs or, you know, winning, what's that slogan? I can't even get my slogan, but... about the speakers, the organizers, 
and the philosophy of the program and how sports, energy, and consciousness are interrelated. Rick, I'd like to ask you about these two areas from the macro to the micro. The micro being the individual player using energy and having an awareness of the way their energy and their athletic performance are intertwined. But also the macro level. You mentioned in the previous segment that fan energy is measurable. How do you measure something as intangible as that wave of enthusiasm that's passing through the stadium? Well, you're right that it's intangible, so we're measuring in, indirect effects of it. And there were two different techniques that I explored in the making of that documentary film. One of them is relatively easy to explain, and the other one, I have no idea how it works, but I'll have a go at uh, describing it anyway. So the first one is the notion that uh, people are surrounded by an electromagnetic field. That's not controversial, that's measured and known. And much like magnets when you play with them as a kid, they don't have to touch in order to interact. So the idea is that human energy fields interact, and there are ways in which those individual fields can synchronize and come into resonance one with another around certain strong emotions. And this is, um, so building on the work of the HeartMath Institute, they found that when people focus on particular positive emotions, especially appreciation and, and respect and emotions like that, it changes the rhythm of the heartbeat into a pattern that they call heart coherence that has a, a special uh, linking ability so that the heart's electromagnetic field and the brain's electromagnetic field are linked and mind-body coordination is increased. So I thought that if that's true, one person coming into heart coherence should be able to influence the magnetic field and the heart rhythm of somebody sitting near them. My guess was that something similar happens sound when they're all in an appreciative mood, that it becomes a contagious type of energy entrainment. So we did a demonstration in the physiology lab at uh, HeartMath, where I was a guinea pig, I was blindfolded and earplugs and, you know, in sensory isolation, connected up to their monitor in my own way of being relaxed, which slowed down my heart rate, but interestingly, I was not in that state of heart coherence. And then at some point, out of my conscious awareness, a group of four practitioners came in, they sat behind me, and at a signal from the director of research, they spontaneously entered the state of heart coherence by shifting their emotional focus. And watching the readout on the computer system afterwards, within a matter of seconds, literally less than 10 seconds, my nervous system shifted into that heart coherence mode without me consciously knowing that anything had changed. So it provided a very powerful demonstration of if four people could synchronize a fifth person, what would happen if you know you have 10,000 or Fenway Park 35,000, but you know, larger group. And if the fans are in that mode, would it not entrain the players who are caught in that same field? That was the notion that an electromagnetic wave could be created if the fans got into a state of positive emotion. Now, that, that'd be a challenge because a lot of fans get more enjoyment cursing the enemy than they do in praising their own team. So we actually spoke with Dr. William Tiller, one of the prime physicists researching this, and he made the point that you can destroy the standing waves, as they call it, with negative emotions like anger, and that much more powerful if the fans can stay in a, a positive frame of mind and elevate their players through that, through that technique. So that was in the lab we made that demonstration just in a controlled setting with four or five people. And that's a model that kind of makes intuitive sense that people People are like tuning forks and electromagnetic fields can resonate with one another. 
But in the stadium itself, it's, it's impossible to make those kind of measurements. So we shifted gears and looked into a technique that was developed or popularized, I should say, at uh, Princeton University in the Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, where they found that the output of computerized devices could be influenced by thought. Here it is in a nutshell, is that random events like flipping a coin or a computer that generates thousands of random ones and zeros per second can be influenced if a group of people are focused in a certain way. Sounds pretty odd because there's a space between the person and the computer that they're focusing on. So the mechanism of action isn't really clear, but over 30 years they've documented hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times that you can influence the output of a computer number generator just by tuning attention and intention. And so they've, they've miniaturized this device that fits into a, a laptop so and makes real-time measurements. So what we did was we hooked up my laptop and brought it to a baseball game at Stanley Park. And you basically just turn it on and record the raw data. It has to be analyzed later. Run, it's like flipping a coin. If you get, you know, you, you expect 50-50 heads and tails, you might get 60-40, you know, 6 out of 10 could be one, or even 7 out of 10, and you wouldn't think much of it. But if you start getting runs of 10 in a row, to a statistically significant degree, then you know that some other force is at work. So we made those measurements during the course of a game and found that there were, we were looking for correlations between game time events and the output of the computer. I was simply jotting down and I thought were key moments, not knowing what the computer was, hadn't been analyzed yet. Maybe when we get back from the break, I can tell you about the amazing results that we found. I'd love to know what you found. We're back shortly after a break. My name is Dawson Church, speaking with my friend Rick Lesbeth of the SEC Group, and you can find out more about the conference at sec.esuniverse.com. We'll be right back after a break, so please stay tuned. Welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and you can find out more about the show at my website, DawsonGift.com. You'll also get a free copy of Eco Meditation audio and instructions on the super simple meditation technique. I call it Meditation for Failed Meditators. People who take a meditation course and couldn't do it or try to develop a meditation practice and just couldn't make it stick or we're told to quiet their mind, and if you're like me, that's pretty much impossible. So, eco meditation is something you can learn at DawsonGift.com. You can also download a free copy of the EFE mini-manual at DawsonGift.com. That's where you go for the show archives and many free resources to help with your health and happiness. So, at DawsonGift.com, you'll find many different tips, techniques, and downloads that will help you on your, your journey. We were talking in the last while with Rick Leskowitz about this whole idea of consciousness and energy. And so, Rick, before the break, you were talking about the whole measurement process you did and how during the game, the baseball game, you were using this, this briefcase size random number generator and also noting down some of the, 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 the emotional peaks of the game. Pick up with that story and show us where you went next for this. Yeah, so so during the course of the game, I would jot down, you know, if, if somebody hit a dramatic home run, for example, I would jot down that 
At 8.25, uh, David Ortiz hit a home run. It was a moment of great suspense. I would put, you know, bases loaded and two men out at uh, 9.30. You know, just jot down my list without knowing what the computer was registering. So I accumulated a list of about 15 or peak events and prioritized them. And I had my top five or six that I thought were, were absolutely unmistakable. Sent off the raw data to the fellow who devised this text. And he sent, you know, a couple of days later, sent back a graph going moment-to-moment variations in the randomness of the computer output. That most of the time it hovered pretty close to the 50-50 line, you know, 51-49, what have you. But during the course of the game, a fair number of statistically significant spikes back more than you would expect from random fluctuation. Enough of those that the odds were over 100,000 to 1 that this was just random. But what I thought was most important was that the two biggest spikes during the course of the game so at these three standard deviations above normal happened at two, during two of the peak moments that I had identified. And they were pretty easy to identify. One of them was when the crowd did that cheering mechanism called the wave, where, you know, they move their arms, they stand up in a synchronization that, that travels like a wave around the ballpark. But while the fans were doing that, the computer was responding, even though... There wasn't like a microphone that would pick up sound, vibration detector that would pick up the movement of the people. Something was in the air that was affecting the output of the random number generator. So that was one of them. And then the other one, the other peak event happened when there's a tradition at the ball game in, in Boston that at a certain point in the game, everybody sings the same, if I may say, very corny Neil Diamond songs from the 70s called Sweet Caroline, become somehow the anthem of the team without reaching out and touching them. It's, you know, heartfelt. That, that was the thing, that the, the crowd really, really gets into it. And that was the other moment that the computers picked up on it. Again, there's no microphone to detect the change in volume of the cheers. So something real happens. The computer can respond to and detect. Human beings can respond to it and detect because everybody feels it and gets carried away by the emotions. What it is, I can only speculate because, as I mentioned, there were no connections. You know, there's no wires or mechanical links to that computer. So, you know, some of the researchers talked about processes like involving quantum mechanics, and they'll talk about the quantum field and quantum entanglement. But it's another way of describing how people are connected at some deeper inner level. I can't say that I understand. might actually be But for me, the important thing is just the demonstration of it, that everybody has experienced, and now we have a way of testing it with machines. And culture being what it is, we tend to discount that personal experience and put our trust on it. It's a machine detector that must be real. <laughs> yeah, and so we, we, we're just being able to measure these things. We don't know what the underlying mechanisms are. Maybe as a, as a quick aside, I've read the criticisms of the Paralab work, and they, they're really vicious. I'm just wondering why this kind of work arouses such intense hostility among these skeptics. You know, just, just reading the emotional tone, I mean, vitriol, which they attacked the Paralab and the, and the work done there is just extraordinary. And I'm just wondering why, why, the, why this sort of research doesn't arouse scientific curiosity, but rather this kind of hugely negative emotional reaction among the skeptics. Well, I think it's because scientists and skeptics are human beings and have very strong emotions and emotional attachments. And not everybody can adopt the scientific, the ideal scientific perspective of the quest for truth trumps everything else. Because people get very invested in a worldview and then a finding or experiment comes along that challenges it, it can be very challenging. I mean, in the field of energy psychology, as you well know, very vociferous skeptics who have 
commandeered resources like Wikipedia and filled it with their extreme bias and totally discounting the scientific evidence. These kind of findings that I've been talking about, they really blend over into things like extrasensory perception, for example. And um, those are, you know, if you start to accept that, you have to acknowledge that there's more to reality than what our five physical senses tell us. And if that's true, then, you know, that just opens up a huge panorama of possibilities. And not everybody's ready for that. So I think it's very, very threatening. It won't be couched in that language. And I, I have to say, I've shifted my attitude towards skeptics. I used to spend a lot of my time and energy trying to find the best way to convince skeptics. And that led to, you know, doing some convincing work and demonstrations and writing. But if somebody is really invested in being a skeptic, then there's nothing you can do about it. It's their, their path to be that way. And, you know, they have my blessings, but I'm more interested in working with the people who are openly curious. You know, you can be open-minded and skeptical, and then when you allow some of this new information in, then your transformation can happen. And that's, that's putting my energy uh, into it. So I guess people listening to the show can't see that I'm bald, but I pulled out a lot of hairs trying to find skeptics. <laughs> I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorite quotes about skeptics is uh, by a guy called Sam Harris. He says, to somebody who doesn't accept the evidence, what evidence can you supply that will convince them? And there's always evidence for these phenomena. And yet these, these guys, these skeptics, simply reject them. And as you say, they control Wikipedia. They control all of the alternative medicine entities in Wikipedia. And they actually prohibit any, any other, any experts from going in there and correcting them. Yeah. What are called protected pages in Wikipedia. Respected researchers, scientists, academics, experts in the field, people who are certified and trained, actually cannot go in there and so simply the Wikipedia pages simply reflect all the biases of those hostile sketches who yeah. resolutely yeah. exclude all the evidence for the phenomena they don't like from yeah. those Wikipedia entries. So beware if you are looking for any kind of complementary or alternative medicine information Avoid Wikipedia. Uh, there are many corporate interests there. There are certainly some. If you go to the talk pages, you'll see many other interests there that are going to make sure you don't get the truth. So you're listening to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. And again, for more about the Sports Energy and Consciousness Conference, go to the website fecsec.eftuniverse.com. We'll be right back after a break. Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and to find out more about the Sports, Energy, and Consciousness Conference happening this coming June in the San Francisco Bay Area, go to the website SEC, and that's just short for Sports, Energy, and Consciousness, sec.eftuniverse.com. SEC.EFUniverse.com. You'll find registration links there, information about the organizers, and a description of the fascinating hypotheses behind this whole idea that consciousness plays a huge role in both athletic performance and also our, our health. 
So, Ritzy, look at this whole idea that people through shifts in consciousness are affecting these fields. How big can this phenomenon scale up of group, of group consciousness? How, how big can it go in, in terms of, of, of numbers of people of a global scale? Well, I don't think there's a limit to how big it can be. And I honestly think that we're in a moment in history where that exact kind of shift is in the process of occurring. And as we approach some kind of tipping point of consciousness, and uh, the more that people spend time in a state of alignment with the, the highest parts of themselves, the more directly or indirectly entering other people to enter that space, and it spreads. Just like the way that family talks, it's a little bit harder to measure. Actually, um, if people are interested in reading in more detail about those two studies that um, that I mentioned, they can be downloaded. The, the, the papers, they're both written up in journals. They, they can be downloaded. Uh, the website for the, the documentary film is called, the site is thejoyofstockmovie.com. You can download the hot mass paper and the random number generator paper. But, you know, I'm thinking of there's been some research with the Transcendental Meditation people did. They gathered hundreds of meditators in 10 for a week or a month or how long it was. During the time that more and more people joined in the day-long meditation, they were tracking the crime rate in Washington, D.C., which is where the meditation retreat was happening. And in a, as an exact correlation, as more people joined in, the crime rate actually went down by uh, over 25% during that interval. So that's, a, that's an effect that goes beyond the stadium. And I think similar things are happening now. There's a spin-off the Princeton Research Group is a group called the Global Consciousness Project. They do is they have these random number generators distributed around the world, several dozen of them, making continuous measurements. And they're noticing that certain events that bring together millions and millions of people register on their on their network. So it's a really interesting website for Global Consciousness Project and even things like the Super Bowl, the last Super Bowl. Not remember the dramatic finish to it, but that registered in this global network of computers. So it's not just so it's not just local effects. Then it's also on a really large scale that we see these kinds of phenomena. Looks like we lost the connection with Rick over there, and so I'll just go ahead and recap what he was saying there. The global consciousness project has a network of these random number generators spread all over the world, and they're measuring when. These are showing spikes and linking them to global events. Like, for example, Rick mentioned the Super Bowl, and I know that on 9-11, for example, was another time when these random number generators were showing numbers that weren't random. You expect a random number generator to be generating random numbers, just a, a random collection of ones and zeros. When that randomness is becomes coherent in some way or becomes as being random, that is often linked to some event, like 9-11, that has a big global effect on human consciousness. I know there are several groups who are working on measuring these kinds of spikes and also giving us some kind of explanatory framework for them because not only do we need to observe these phenomena, we need to scientifically give a sense of give a sense of the mechanism behind them. What is what is the field that is driving this here? What is the field that is creating this kind of a shift? And are these fields affecting consciousness? Are these fields being generated by consciousness? Is consciousness itself a field? These are very interesting questions and again they're they're far beyond the realm of conventional academic endeavor. In fact, the whole field of consciousness is very, very controversial, with some philosophers saying that consciousness is simply an 
epiphenomenon, the activity of the brain, as brains became more and more and more complex over the course of evolution, eventually those brains became conscious. Others, though, say that the brain is more like a transceiver that is able to receive and transmute that field of consciousness into thought. So this is research, this is a field in its infancy, and I think one of the most fascinating new fields that is emerging now and will give us many new answers in the years to come. You've been listening to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. For more about the show, go to my website, DawsonGift.com. It's my name, DawsonGift.com. We'll be back next week with another in the fascinating series of shows on thoughts and things. And in the meantime, be healthy, be happy. We'll talk in a week. Thank you.